Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 31, and that can be found on page 1049 of your Blue Bibles. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, coveted sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to them, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, really great to see you all here. Um, If I haven't met you before, uh, my name is Malcolm. If you're visiting with us today, thanks so much for joining us. It's really great to have you all here. Now, I'm sure all of us are familiar with the phrase, It's the thought that counts. Uh, Or the similar one, your heart was in the right place. What do we mean by that? Well, maybe when I say it's the thought that counts, you think of a present that you bought for someone for Christmas. Uh, You might have put a lot of thought into this, but it turns out they already had it. Uh, When when I personally think of uh, the phrase, your heart was in the right place, I think of the time that I organized a surprise party for my wife, Ainsley. Now, I did not know at the time she doesn't like surprise parties. Uh, I did know that she doesn't like organizing parties for herself. So I thought, hey, here's a way I can throw a party where she doesn't have to do the work. 
Turns out she doesn't like surprise parties, but you know, she was a good sport, ended up uh, having a good time at the party, and now I know that's not the best choice for her. Hopefully all these years later, she has forgiven me and could say something like, your heart was in the right place, Malcolm. Although maybe I would add to that now, too bad I didn't bring along my head for the ride. But you know what I mean. I mean, like, when we mess up, we are inclined to look to our intentions to justify ourselves. We might say something like, I didn't mean to offend you. I promise I was trying to help. No, officer, it is true I, was, I wasn't looking at my speedometer, but it's because I was so busily carefully watching the traffic around me. And if you look at our passage today, you'll actually see this idea of where our heart is crops up when Jesus talks to the Pharisees. Um, and if you're visiting with us today, uh, you may, might have read the, the start of this and thought, hang on, did I miss something? Because, you know, in, in the start of the passage, verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They heard all oh, what? Well, we've been looking through uh, the Gospel of Luke um, uh, week by week, uh, doing a passage. And uh, Jesus, last week we looked at, Jesus had just been talking to his disciples, his uh, friends and those he was teaching about money and how to shrewdly use uh, money for the purposes of growing God's kingdom. Uh, if you want to hear more about that, Matt, our senior minister, spoke on this uh, last week very well and you're welcome to listen online. But we see here that these Pharisees nearby were eavesdropping. They were listening in on Jesus talking to his disciples. And they were having a good laugh to themselves, actually, because they thought what Jesus was saying was ridiculous. Now, it might be a bit confusing for us. You know, we think, you know, generosity, giving, shrewdness with money, that's all good stuff. But in their minds and in their culture... Having money was a sign of being blessed by God for living correctly. And so Jesus comes in and he says, give all that blessing away that's rightfully yours. For who? And he says, for people who haven't done the right thing, people that don't deserve it. Ah, That doesn't really make any sense, does it? I mean, the best I can compare it to nowadays is like telling the team who won the AFL premiership to give their premiership trophy to the team who was at the bottom of the ladder. That doesn't really make any sense. Why would you do that? So hopefully you can get an idea of why the Pharisees might have been uh, sneering at Jesus. So uh, let's look at the next section in your notes, if you're following along, the law, the kingdom, and our hearts. Uh, this is from verse 15 to 18. So We saw Luke has just told us in verse 14, the Pharisees have a problem with money. What you'd expect then is for Jesus to turn around and to tell them, hey guys, look, loosen your grip on your wallets. But he doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus takes it a step further and tells them that the problem is in their hearts. They've misunderstood God's laws and their hearts are completely in the wrong place. Let's take a look again at what he says. Uh, So this is from verse 15. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. 
What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that is, uh, John the Baptist. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So Jesus is saying, the Pharisees here have actually fundamentally misunderstood the law. They think it's about ticking boxes, that they can just live however they want to so long as they do these certain things. But that was never the intention of the law. The law was meant to encourage people to follow God with their whole hearts. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere, the most important commandment from the law is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And actually, I think uh, the short quote that Jesus gives from Deuteronomy, uh, the, the whole passage in Deuteronomy, rather, is actually quite helpful. So I'll just turn there for a second. This is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4 to 9. It's on page 182 of your blue Bibles, if you would like to turn there. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them down on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So can you see this here? The, the law was never meant to be about ticking boxes. It was no more a checklist for heaven than ticking things off your grocery list makes you a nice meal. The Israelites were clearly called to more than this. They were called to be all in hearts and all. And so, coming back to Jesus talking to the Pharisees again, what he's saying is something like, come on guys, just following the rules isn't really what this is about. And actually, even if we look at the way you're following the rules right now, we see you're not even doing that correctly. You're justifying yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. And at this point, they might have been thinking, and maybe you are too, well, what exactly is Jesus talking about? I mean, I know he's saying their hearts aren't in it, but it's kind of abstract speech. So Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say they're misinterpreting the law and then walk off. He goes on and gives a couple of very specific examples of how the Pharisees' hearts are in the wrong place. And the first one here is teaching around divorce. Now, I'll start off by saying uh, there are a couple of things in our passage today that are shocking to our mainstream Western culture. And yes, we get to talk today about both divorce and hell in the same passage. As far as I know, uh, 
Matt Lehman's absence today wasn't planned specifically to put me in the deep end like this. But I do think I need to qualify that on sensitive topics like this, we don't actually have the time in this one sermon to discuss them all. Uh, If you feel like I've rushed through them or maybe I haven't touched on certain aspects of marriage, divorce or hell in this sermon, please do rest assured it's not because I don't think it's important or uh, there's just, look, there's just so much in this passage. We could unpack it all day, have a whole sermon on each verse pretty much. Uh, You're welcome to send in questions if you like. I'll do my best to answer them in question time later on uh, so long as it doesn't postpone the lunch for the rose for too long. Anyway, let's get back to what Jesus is saying. He's just told the Pharisees their hearts are in the wrong place. They've misunderstood the law, and now he's giving a a quick example. Let's pick it up again from verse 17. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what's he trying to teach from this? Because many, many of us here uh, who have been personally affected by divorce, this statement from Jesus hits pretty close to home. Is his main point to condemn those who divorce and remarry? Well, actually, I think no. That's not his point here. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees who thought they understood the law. Divorce itself was a hotly debated issue in Jesus' day. Some people even thought that a man had grounds for divorcing his wife if he didn't like the way his wife prepared a certain meal. So Jesus is weighing in on this conversation by reminding people that the consequences of divorce are quite extreme. His point is that just because the law allows divorce, it shouldn't be taken lightly. Perhaps it's like the army. It's nice to know that the army is there for extreme circumstances, but you know things are in a pretty devastating state when the army is called in. The government doesn't send in tanks to manage traffic when a traffic light goes out. So you see, the Pharisees had misread this provision for divorce that was in the law. They thought because that provision was there, that it could just be meted out whenever needed. And because of that, it was used to the selfish ends of men. And I do mean men here, as in males, because in that culture, it was the males who were the ones who would divorce their wives. And Jesus cuts back against this harshly, saying, no, you can't just get divorced for anything. If you're a man who treats women with such disregard to divorce them because of burnt toast or some other selfish reason, you're actually breaking the Ten Commandments by remarrying. So hopefully you can see that this idea actually applies to us now. Now, don't mishear me. Jesus isn't saying, and I'm not saying, that divorce should never happen, because sometimes, sadly, it is necessary. But if you look at our culture, where marriages last increasingly less time, 
and when there's often no expectation of lifelong commitment, you can see the disconnect between what marriage is supposed to be and how lightly marriage and divorce is being treated by the world around us. Basically, being flippant and taking selfish chances with how God has designed us to work is going to end you up in a lot of hot water. Now, there's plenty more that could be said about marriage and divorce um, from this passage and from the whole Bible. And I apologize if I haven't answered your burning questions on this issue. But hopefully you can see the reason why Jesus was using this as an example. Because the Pharisees had twisted God's law to their own purposes. And that actually brings us to the next point. So uh, on your outline, the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus explains now through a longer story what he's talking about. He's just given the shorter example of divorce, and now he's talking about, uh, now he tells this story about the rich man and a beggar called Lazarus. Okay, so let's pick it up from verse 19, if you're reading along in your Bibles. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every, every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came where the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, I'm sure you can already see the contrast between these two people. The rich man is this guy who waltzes out of his mansion every day where he feasts. He comes out of the gate and sees this filthy beggar. He, we find out later on, he knows him well enough to know his name is Lazarus. So obviously, the rich man probably sees him every day and maybe interacts with him, but never does anything for him. In fact, the only sympathy that Lazarus seems to get is from dogs. They're the only ones attending his sores. And this puts the rich man to shame even further. But, as they say, the only things certain in life are death and taxes. So, of course, after a time, they are both taxed by their government. Oh, sorry. No, they both die. And we see an astonishing reversal. Uh, let's read on. This is a, uh, we'll pick it up again from verse 22. The time came where the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So again, another light topic. Uh, let's pause for a second and talk about the description of hell here. Now, if you're here and you're visiting with us for the first time, or you're not a Christian, and maybe you haven't heard any teaching on heaven or hell before, welcome. <laughs> I assure you, we don't talk about this every week. But <laughs> I do know that it's a particularly contentious issue in our culture also. Um, as many people have a, a question, something along the lines of, why would a loving God send people to suffer in hell? Now, I, I do understand it's a confronting topic, quite frankly. If it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't choose to talk about it. Even though we don't have enough time to spend 
building up a theology of the afterlife today and working out how it all fits together, this passage does actually throw us a couple of encouragements if you find the idea of hell particularly confronting. Um, So the first one is, uh, where should people go if they don't want to be with God when they die? That is, what's called Abraham's side here uh, in this story is a place for those who love God and want to spend eternity with him. Should God force people to come in there who have no interest in being there and who have actually spent their whole lives on earth rejecting him? The idea of Hades or hell in the story of the rich man and Lazarus never comes across as unjust. I mean, you even look at the rich man in the story. Not once does he ask to be taken to Abraham's side. In fact, the only thing he seems to want is for Lazarus to keep serving him while he's suffering. He still thinks Lazarus is beneath him. He doesn't want to change. The second thing, uh, it's clear from later in the passage that there's actually, there's enough in God's word to help people to get to Abraham's side, to avoid being on the wrong side of that chasm. God hasn't left us out to dry. Abraham tells this rich man later on that his brothers have enough in the Old Testament of the Bible, he says Moses and the prophets, that's what he's talking about, to help them follow God with their whole heart. And us here today, we have even more clarity than they did because we see how God's plan was fulfilled in Jesus. So again, there's so much more that we could say. Hopefully those two things help a little. Um, We did actually, uh, a few months ago, uh, go through a series in the book of Revelation, and the issue of hell and judgment came up there. So I would encourage you, if you've got more questions on that, perhaps you can uh, listen to some of those sermons online if you want to think that through further. Anyhow, coming back to the passage. Why was it then that the rich man ended up in Hades? Well, uh, Abraham's reply, verse 25, says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. Almost sounds like he's there because he's rich. Uh, No, I don't think that's the reason. He didn't get sent to Hades just because he was rich even if it sounds like it a little. Uh, It's not that you have to prove you're poor enough to make it into heaven. If that were the case, I'm sure basically all of us in here would be disqualified because, you know, remember even the richest man in the first century didn't have cars or 4G phones or pavlova. Okay, all right, pavlova is not that advanced, but it is tasty, so it's in my list. It's not simply because he's rich that he's ended up there. Remember who Jesus is talking to. From verse 14 at the start, the Pharisees here love money. Jesus has said, God knows your hearts. So Jesus is connecting the Pharisees with the the rich man in this story. So when we find out that this rich man, who clearly loves his money, ends up in hell, we're actually seeing the end result of where the Pharisees are going on their current trajectory. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 26. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they won't also come to this place of torment." And again, you see that this rich man isn't interested in repenting at all. He's not arguing about where he's ended up. In some ways, it's kind of nice that he's thinking about his family. But again, he has no love at all for Lazarus. And he still treats him like a servant. He's asking Lazarus to go back from the dead to warn his brothers to a place where Lazarus was miserable and suffering. And I think here that Jesus is deliberately exposing the Pharisees' own attitude. Their concern is only for themselves. And Abraham answers this rich man in a very surprising way. So uh, from verse 29, Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So Abraham's saying, they have got the information they need already. They've got the Bible right there. All they have to do is read it. So this is both a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees for not listening to the teachings of Moses and the prophets, but also here we actually see Jesus foreshadowing his own death, because Jesus will die and rise again. Sorry if that's a spoiler for those of you who haven't uh, heard the Easter story yet. But Jesus rising from the dead was very contentious. Sure, the church did grow extremely rapidly because of his resurrection, and yet even still there were people who didn't follow him, because some people will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I'll admit, I used to think that was a little exaggerated. Come on, surely. If you saw someone rise from the dead, surely that would shake you up a bit. Anyway, a few, a few years ago, I was uh, working on campus at Adelaide Uni with a group called Evangelical Students. Uh, in that role, I had plenty of time to chat with people who didn't believe in God. Um, and I remembered that someone had mentioned, you know, it's often a good, a good question to ask, what would it take for you to believe? So, you know, I've asked plenty of people that. Some people gave varying answers about, you know, I would have to see something amazing to believe. But I remember one person giving a very honest answer. They said, you know what? I actually think nothing would convince me. I think anything, anything I saw, I would rationalize and explain away. Now, in one sense, I was sad for them, but... I did appreciate their honesty, because I think they were just vocalizing what a lot of other people probably thought. So on that, I would firstly say to all of you here who are Christians, don't be surprised. Some of the people that we tell about Jesus won't turn to him. There were people who saw Jesus... Jesus do amazing things in his earthly ministry, who turned a blind eye. 
Not everyone's going to take the time to listen to God and take his word seriously. But also, we need to continue to make this a priority. You can see from the way that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the stakes are very high. He's saying this to them because he wants them to change. He wants them to enter the kingdom. He tells them about where their current trajectory is heading, not to bring them down, but to change their course. Why do you think we've, this morning, commissioned the Roe family to go to South Africa and to train pastors? It's part of our commitment as a church to see God's kingdom and our extended church family grow all across the world. That people we've never personally met and probably never will meet in this life might be eternally grateful for the great sacrifice that the Rose have made and the sacrifices that we all make in sending them. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd actually like to place the onus on you and ask, what would it take for you to believe? What would it take for you to believe in God? Or to believe that Jesus is God's son and rose from the dead? Hopefully, from what we've talked about this morning, you can see that the stakes are high. Christians aren't just telling people about Jesus because they think he's a nice guy. He is, but it's because they deeply care for everyone. They want all people to know him and be with their loving creator forever. So if you've never properly investigated Jesus before, or perhaps you haven't thought about God for a long time, please ask someone you know at this church. um, If you can chat with them, perhaps read more about Jesus uh, in the Bible with them. If you don't know anyone, please ask one of the staff. We're all keen to see more people know Jesus. And this talk of knowing Jesus brings us back around to the central idea of the passage, having hearts in the right place. See, Jesus has been extremely clear, abundantly clear to the Pharisees who love money that their hearts are self-seeking. They care nothing for God or for others. That's why he gave them this example, the example of how they view divorce and then this longer story of the rich man and Lazarus. He's saying, you are headed for disaster. What's having our hearts in the right place then? Well, we've already talked about the first thing that is trusting in Jesus and following him. The Pharisees loved money, but what they really needed to do was love God. And if they had been, other things would have flown from that. Uh, Matt spoke to us last week about uh, giving to grow God's kingdom. Uh, Generosity is definitely one of the marks of someone who loves God. Uh, It will look different for each of us, but of course, uh, in following Jesus, we should seek to be generous with what we have. And as I said before, telling telling others about Jesus is another. Um, We're keen to see people come to know Jesus. I've got to say, these are things that I'm personally continually working through. There are times when I don't want to be generous or I feel like I can't. 
There are times when I've seen an opportunity for evangelism, but I feel tired or worn down or worried it will go badly, so I just sidestep it. But for me and for you and for each of us, let's continue to pray for opportunities to ask God to help us be generous or that we might be able to share our faith maybe with someone at work or someone else we know. Let's keep doing that and encouraging each other at church to do the same. Now, may our hearts be in the right place, living for God's glory in his kingdom and for the rest of our lives. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for showing us in Jesus that it's not simply about ticking boxes and following rules, but that you care about our hearts. May we follow you with all our hearts and live our lives for your glory. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.